Open your Bibles to Psalm 96. Psalm 96. We're going to be specifically in verses 10 through 13 this evening, but I'd actually like for us to go ahead and read the entire psalm to give us some context for where the verses we will consider actually fall. Psalm 96. This is God's Word. O sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory. Do his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, you are the one who has caused all Scripture to be written for our learning. And we ask tonight that we would hear it, that we would read it, that we would pay attention to it, that we would learn it, and that we would inwardly digest it, that by patience and the comfort of your word, we may embrace and hold fast to Jesus Christ, in whom is our hope. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. One of the basics of the Christian faith that we confess is the return of Jesus Christ to this world to judge. We just confess that in the Apostles' Creed that we confess together. That creed is a basic statement of the Christian faith, and it says that after he ascended, Jesus Christ sat down at the right hand of God, and from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. Or if you're like me, and you just can't resist some of the older verbiage of the English language, from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Now for many of us, this whole picture, perhaps you felt this a little bit as we read from Matthew 25 this evening, this whole picture of standing before the glorified Jesus Christ and being judged by him at the end of the all time can fill us with some trepidation and fear. Who wouldn't read Matthew 25, 31 through 46 and not be sober at the prospect of standing before the judge and king of the entire universe? But it can fill us with fear and we might say to ourselves, I know that Jesus Christ has died for me. I know that I'm saved. I know that there is now no condemnation for me because I'm in Christ Jesus. 
but come on. <laughs> How in the world can I, weak as I am, stand before him and endure his judgment? How is this really going to work out for me in the final day? Those types of questions are sobering for us. That day does have a particular aura about it, and we rightly recognize it as a day of extreme gravity when the righteous are finally separated from the wicked. But what I want us to see this evening is that even with all of the apprehensiveness that we might have of that day, for Christians, the day of judgment is a day of festal rejoicing. On that day, we are declared before the entire creation to belong to Jesus Christ. We are revealed to be the sons and the daughters of God, and there is a great celebration that we partake of on that day. And our passage is telling us here this evening that God coming to judge the world is good news for us. The entire creation is rejoicing that God is coming to judge the world in righteousness. Now, the psalm that we have here tonight, 96, it's given, us, given to us in a substantially similar form in 1 Chronicles 16. If you may remember, in 1 Chronicles 16, David has secured the throne finally, and he has secured a place for the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God in Jerusalem. And you may remember that the procession of the Ark to its place in Jerusalem was a huge celebration. David was dancing and rejoicing as the ark was brought to Jerusalem and there were multitudes of singers and musicians and the ark of God, the place where God's glory dwells, the, the, the God's footstool, it came and it's finally coming to its appointed place. The place where God pronounces judgment is finally coming to its place. And the reason there is rejoicing on the part of David and all Israel is that this ark is symbolic and points forward to the righteous rule and judgment of God. And they're celebrating because this is now coming back among them. God is among his people. God will be for his people. He will judge in favor of his people, and he will destroy their enemies. That's why this psalm shows up in that celebration. Let's rejoice. God is coming back among his people as king, and he will render true and right judgment in their favor. God is our judge. Not the gods of the nations, the true God. Let's celebrate. There's three things I want us to see out of the text here in verses 10 through 13 tonight. Verse 10 is the good news of God's judgment. The good news of God's judgment. In the verses 11 and 12, the anticipation of God's judgment. Anticipation of his judgment. And then verse 13, the righteousness of God's judgment. The righteousness of his judgment. So first, the good news of God's judgment. This is verse 10. You remember that before he ascended to heaven, Jesus gave the great commission to his apostles. Now that great commission was foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Jesus didn't just pull that out of thin air. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that Israel was intended to serve as a light for the Gentiles, as a light for all the nations, that all the earth would look to Israel as the nation from which salvation would come. And here in verse 10, the Great Commission 
is foreshadowed. It shows up as the psalmist commands God's people to say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Just as Jesus came announcing in his ministry that the kingdom of God is here, so we too are those who announce among all the nations, the Lord reigns. And is this not the best news in the world? I do what many of you do, and I check the news websites on a daily basis to see what is going on in the world. I do that less and less now because I just get more and more flabbergasted with the whole thing. Most everything I read has to do with a war going on somewhere, an injustice being committed, a maneuver by a politician or a celebrity committing some sin. And we can read all this and we can become dumbfounded over the state of our world. But as Christians, we have news that, that is greater than all of these troubling headlines. The Lord reigns. All the earthly rulers in our current age, whether in this life or in the next, they're all going to bow down to King Jesus, and they're all going to confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Kim Jong-un, Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping, Joe Biden, they're all going to bow the knee one day to the true king of the universe who is currently reigning over the entire world. And that's extremely good news. It's good news that despite all of the power plays made by leaders on the world stage, there's only one king who is in control over all, and he is the one who has established himself as king over all, Jesus Christ, the ascended and risen Lord. This is good news which should be announced among all the nations. We have no king but Jesus Christ. Notice in the second line of verse 10, we, we are told that we should announce the promise of the king. The world is Say among the nations that the world is established. It shall never be moved. What outstanding news. There, there is no political ruler. There is no political movement. There is no power in all of the earth that can destroy the world or shake it out of its place apart from the will of the true king, God Almighty. What a promise. No nuclear war can move this creation. The world stands, it shall never be moved. No ungodly ideology can finally and fully win. Death itself cannot thwart God's purposes for creation. All the threats of so-called world leaders have no sway over the God-ordained course of this world. It is the true king of the world who raises up and brings down. It's the true king who decides what happens in this world, and he is for us, his people. The only one who has authority to determine what happens in this world is that king. So stop worrying about your world takeover conspiracy theories. The Lord reigns, nobody else. The world was created by him and it will never be moved. What good news for this world that we should announce. And if people would but believe it, what hope they would have for their own futures. Then third line of verse 10, it is good news we should announce that God will judge the peoples with equity. God is a God of perfect justice. He never does wrong. He never treats anybody in any way that is unfair. 
wrongs that are, this is mind-blowing to me, wrongs that are perpetrated by the strong against the weak are not forgotten by God. Not one of them is forgotten by God, and he will render true and perfect judgment on that day. That's good news. It's good news that we are the children of a God who does what is right, who does justice. We ought not fret when we see people in this world who we think have evaded justice. There's no chance that they will ever be able to evade God's justice. This is one of the reasons that we can learn to be merciful to those who sin against us and still refuse to repent. We can learn to love our enemies because judgment is coming and they're not going to escape God's righteous judgment. We've heard a lot in our day about the need for justice, the need to right wrongs. Where did that idea come from? It comes from an innate sense in all humans that God who created us and who reigns over this entire world is a God of perfect justice. That's been put there by God the Father. He created us and made us to long for justice and righteousness to be done. And any failures of justice in this world, and there are plenty of them, any failures of justice in this world, we can all be assured will be remedied in the next world in such a way that nobody will be able to credibly accuse God of injustice. Isn't that amazing? Every single injustice done in this world, with all of its complexity, is remedied and made right by God in the final day. The wisdom of God in exercising his justice will be so displayed in the final day that I, I get this idea that all we will be able to do is to put our hands over our mouths and bow down and worship. Such is the justice of God. It's marvelous. It's wonderful. It's unbelievable. So when you and I must endure injustice, we're called to fight against anger and bitterness, hard, it, hard as it is, because the king of the world sees the whole thing, and he will do justice. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news to a world that is full of hopeless people who are wondering where justice lies? Every single injustice done in this world is made right in the next world. When Jesus comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. I've had injustices committed against me, and I have committed injustice against others. And God in his power and wisdom and justice is going to right every single one of those wrongs. Rejoice. The Lord reigns. The worlds can't be moved. God will judge with perfect justice. We can't lose. Second, the anticipation of God's judgment. The anticipation of God's judgment. This is verses 11 and 12. Verses 11 and 12 give us a picture of the entire creation rejoicing. The whole cosmos is rejoicing at the coming of God in judgment. And the reason that the creation rejoices is given for us at the beginning of verse 13. Creation rejoices before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. In other words, verse 11 and 12 give us a picture of the inanimate creation actually animating and paving a way for the return of the king by rejoicing before his presence. 
Just as David, along with singers and dancers, paved the way for the ark as it came back to Jerusalem in triumphal procession, so too the entire creation paves the way for God by rejoicing as God comes back to the world to sit upon his throne as judge. So you look here in verse 11. Verse 11 describes this rejoicing by the heavens and the land and the sea. The sky and the earth and the sea, they encompass the entirety of creation. The heavens contain all of the sun, moon, and stars. The earth contains all the plants and animals. The sea contains all fish and water. And it is the entirety of creation that is rejoicing and paving the way for God as he comes back to his world to judge. Notice, too, how verse 11 appeals to our sense of hearing. When we hear the waves roaring before they crash on the beach, or when we see those fascinating documentaries about the cries of the humpback whale, everything filling it is roaring, or when we hear the roaring of Niagara Falls, God created all of those sounds. And he didn't create those sounds just because he thought they sounded cool, though they do. According to verse 11, he created those sounds as the way in which the sea and everything that is in it rejoices at his coming. When you sit on the beach and hear the waves, you should be thinking creation is rejoicing that God is coming. The roaring of the waves is a song of praise to God. Verse 12 narrows the picture down specifically to the plant world. How does the plant world rejoice at God's judgment? What does it say? Let the field exult and everything in it. The abundance of crops in a field or a field blooming, full of blooming wildflowers. When we see incredible growth in the plant world, God has created abundant, beautiful growth, not merely because it looks nice, though it does, but but these plants, when growing abundantly and beautifully, they are rejoicing in anticipation of God returning to judge the world in righteousness. That's what they're doing. I'll never forget the time my wife and I were walking down the road, and we saw this particular plant that looked kind of droopy, and I said, what does it look like to you? She says, it looks like they're bowing down. It's a wonderful thought that I can look at the growth of the plants and that in that growth I can see the plants rejoicing that God is returning to judge the world in righteousness. The second half of verse 12 deals specifically with trees. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. I like what Coverdale does in his translation. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord. What is it that makes trees move? It's the wind. You ever wondered why God created the wind? I'm sure there are lots of reasons. But I think at least one of the reasons God gave us the wind was so that we might have a picture of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit descends upon Pentecost, how is it that they describe how the Spirit descends? He descends as a mighty rushing wind. What does Jesus say that the Holy Spirit is like in John chapter 3? What does he say, Nicodemus? 
The wind blows where it wills, and you don't know where it is or where it's going. So it is with those born of the Spirit. What does a tree begin doing when the wind blows upon it? It it becomes animated, and it moves almost as if it were dancing. You see the connection? When the wind blows upon the trees, it's as if the Holy Spirit himself is blowing and animating the trees and the trees begin dancing and rejoicing because the Spirit, the presence of God is coming. That's the picture here in verse 12. There is abundant growth and the trees are rejoicing because God himself is coming to judge the world. So when you see the wind blowing in the trees, it is giving you a foretelling of creation, rejoicing and dancing that God is coming back to judge. The breath of God blows upon the trees and they begin rejoicing before his presence. If you hide verse 12 in your heart, something as simple in creation as trees blowing in the wind will take you into unbelievable spiritual realities. There is in every hue something that Christless eyes have never seen. But those of us who are in Christ can see it all over the place. Do you remember how Jesus speaks about the inanimate creation crying out and rejoicing at the approach of God? We read it this morning. It's in, it, we read it, it's in the triumphal entry, but specifically it's in Luke's account into Jerusalem. Jesus has entered into Jerusalem to shouts of Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Pharisees hear this and they say to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And what does Jesus reply? He says, I tell you, if these were silent, what? The very stones would cry out. What is Jesus saying? He is saying that everything in creation, including people, has been so designed as to rejoice at the presence of the Lord. So if people themselves are silent at Jesus' approach, the stone themselves will call out and worship to him. Nothing can stop creation rejoicing when the king of glory passes on his way. This festal rejoicing at the approach of God in judgment is something that we are invited into. We are part of the creation that dwells in this earth. We are the preeminent crowning point of creation. We live in a rebellious world full of people who think that rejoicing, true rejoicing comes from getting away from God, not because of his approach. They're scared of his approach. But when we have been so turned by the Holy Spirit to rejoice in God, we become animated as we ponder and meditate on this truth that Christ is coming back to the world to judge the living and the dead. When we look out at the creation, we're not looking at some static inanimate objects that God thought looked nice. It's more than that. He created it that it might rejoice at his approach. Just as a marriage is a picture of Christ and his church, the creation itself is a picture of festal, joyful worship as God approaches to remove the rebellion out of his world in his most righteous judgment. In verse 13, you can even feel the anticipation in the poetry. Look at this. It's like he repeats it. For he comes, for he comes. There's this anticipation. For he comes to judge the earth. There's an anticipation that the Lord is coming quickly, returning quickly, and we're invited into that joyful anticipation, which leads us to our third point. Third, the righteousness of God's judgment. The righteousness of God's judgment. Look at the second half of verse 13. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. 
Let's go back to one of the questions we asked at the beginning of our sermon this evening. How in the world is this something that we can rejoice in? I know myself, and I know that in my heart of hearts, I am not righteous in myself. And I know that faithful in myself, I know that faithful and true judgment condemns me before the throne of God as a sinner. How then can I rejoice? I can rejoice because on that final day, I do not stand before the throne by myself. The king who judges me and who rules from a cross is the one that I am united to. I'm united to the judge. The king pronounces his perfect judgment from the cross. And all who, are, who have sought refuge in his blood belong to him and are pronounced on that day not guilty. There's a picture of judgment before the throne of God in Zechariah chapter 3. Joshua, the high priest, he stands before God's throne and Satan stands at his right hand to accuse him. That's what the name Satan means, accuser. Satan is one who stands before God's throne and says, lawbreaker, 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 lawbreaker. But what does God say? The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? In other words, Satan, I have pulled Joshua away from your grasp. I have plucked him out of the fire, and you cannot make any accusations against him. How is that just? Because the king who rules from the cross has united himself to the sinner, and in that sinner, the king bears the just penalty of the sin in place of the sinner, and the sinner receives the righteousness of the king. Here is one of the great wonders of the final judgment. When we stand before God on the final day, we don't stand on our own, we stand in union with Jesus Christ. And because we are in union with him, guess what? None of the sin that we have committed is charged to our account. And if we read the descriptions of the final judgment in the New Testament, what did we see in Matthew 25? We see that we are actually praised by God because we have performed the good works which God prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Now, isn't that unbelievable? Not only do I have the righteousness of Christ imputed to me, but even my good works done in the body are acknowledged and resound before his throne because they're performed in Jesus Christ. My sin is not counted against me, but my good works because they are performed in Christ, are acknowledged. Jesus said it, didn't he? Even the one who has given a cup of cold water to some, somebody simply because they belong to Jesus Christ will by no means lose their reward. Because we are united to Christ, our works have been wrought in him 
And they become the source of rejoicing before God's throne. It's fascinating to me that in Matthew 25, what we read, the righteous are ignorant of the things that they've done. They're, they're, they're ignorant of their own good works. They forgot about them a long time ago. And God's remembered them and said, well done. When did, when did we see you when you did it to this person, this, my child? When you did it to them, you did it to me. We can endure God's judgment because we stand in union with Christ and our works, many of which we don't pay attention to and are all imperfect in themselves, they are still remembered before the throne of God and become a cause of celebration. What a grace. What a Savior. And God rejoices over us with loud singing. If you want a New Testament verse which sums up everything we've talked about tonight, it comes from that great chapter that we all love, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 19. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation is in in anticipation. It is bursting with excitement. Some writers say the creation is standing on its tiptoes. For what? The revealing of the sons of God. The creation is rejoicing at the judgment of God because it is the judgment that finally reveals the sons and daughters of God to the entire world. You don't have to have acknowledgement by anybody else in this world for anything. For all the small things that you do for Jesus that nobody sees, you don't need acknowledgement from anybody because he sees. And he's the one who matters. Your recognition is coming. When Jesus acknowledges us before the throne on that day in front of the entire creation, what joy, brothers and sisters, our God is coming for us and he will crown us before the entire world. Crown us before the entire world. The renewed world will rejoice. We will rejoice. God will rejoice. For the Christian, growing older is not to be mourned. (laughs) Growing older means I'm closer to that day. And that I can rejoice in anticipation that my king is coming for me. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your word. Father, your promises, when we dig into them, they're overwhelming. Because they come from you and you are overwhelming. And we thank you, Father, that your love has been so magnified that you have chosen us, made us your children. And that in the final day, even with all of the awful, sinful, rebellious things that we've done that we continue to do, you say, well done, good and faithful servant. What a grace, Father. We pray that we would live in that grace, not only this week, but for the rest of our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.